the whole team taking care of that patient, 100% of the time, you're watching for signs of abruption. You're watching for signs of chorioamphitis. These same complications occur across the spectrum of gestational age. So these are just things we're always watching for. to another episode of the Caring for Both podcast. I'm Dr. Christina Francis, CEO of Applog, and I am guest hosting today's episode for our wonderful communications manager, Miriam. Very happy to be with you all today. I'm very happy to have our guest on today. In past episodes of this podcast, we have explained the difference between induced abortions and the various pregnancy interventions that might be required in order to treat serious and even potentially life-threatening pregnancy complications. Today we want to do a deep dive into one specific such condition, pre-labor rupture of membranes or PROM. This is a complication that has been featured in the news a number of times with several women sharing tragic experiences of subpar care they've received when facing this condition. As an organization with thousands of members, many in pro-life states who are able to provide quality care to women even in this situation we feel it's important for medical professionals to know what PROM is and how it can be treated in a life-affirming way. Here to provide this information, our guest today is Dr. Jeff Wright. Dr. Wright is a board-certified maternal-fetal medicine specialist in North Carolina. He completed his MD and a residency and fellowship at the University of Texas Medical School in San Antonio, where he co-founded that institution's first fetal diagnostic unit and developed the institution's capability in fetal echocardiography, fetal Doppler, and umbilical blood sampling. Later, he founded the first maternal fetal medicine practice in southeastern North Carolina, where he has cared for pregnant women and their unborn children since 1990. You may remember Dr. Wright from our 10th episode titled, What is Not an Abortion? If you haven't listened to that episode, be sure to do so after this one. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I have to tell people too, Dr. Wright was previously a board member uh, with me at Applog. And so it's it's great to catch up with a with a dear friend and, and also an expert on this topic. So I think we're going to jump right in and uh, talk about this uh, important uh, condition that we need to understand the treatment of, and especially in this current climate that we're in uh, with some states passing pro-life protections, and that may be causing some confusion uh, in the public. So hopefully we can clear that up today. So, Dr. Wright, if you can just start by telling us um, what is pre-labor rupture of the membranes? What do we mean when we say that? Well, pre-labor rupture of the membranes is any time when the amniotic sac develops a leak before the patient is in labor. You know, the amniotic sac is what contains the amniotic fluid that the baby is floating in. Now, if that rupture occurs before 37 weeks, we call that preterm PROM. And that occurs at about 3% of pregnancies. So that's not rare at all. Now, the term pre-viable PROM, right, that is most commonly applied prior to 22 or 23 weeks, depending on regional variations in neonatal care. Um, so pre-viable PROM only occurs in a small fraction of that 3% we were talking about. And so in the overall population, it's far less than 1% overall. 
Okay. So not a super common condition, um, when it, when it happens before the, the stage of viability, but certainly one, uh, as we said earlier, that is in the news a lot right now. And so I think it's important for us to discuss, you know, what difference does the gestational age make on how we maybe manage this condition or, or how it manifests? Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, there's a lot of angst out there about this topic. You know, prior to viability, really, that's where the, the controversy arises. Some patients and some physicians feel that the pregnancy should just be ended immediately to minimize the risk to the mother. On the other hand, other physicians and patients, you know, they prefer to wait it out and, and hope that the pregnancy will continue long enough to give the baby that opportunity to survive. Absolutely. And I know we're going to talk a little bit uh, later about those risks and, you know, how do we balance those risks and talk to those, talk to our patients about those risks versus the benefits maybe of staying pregnant. But before we get to that, um, you know, help us think through what is it that causes the membranes to rupture? Because sometimes I, or definitely that can have an impact on how we think about what the implications might be of a woman staying pregnant after her, her water breaks. Right, right. Now, in individual cases, you really uh, typically don't really know why, right? But there's there's two primary thoughts. One cause might be that there's a weak spot that developed in the membranes just in the process of developing those membranes. There's a weak spot there as the uterus grows, fills with amniotic fluid, pressure develops, and that weak spot gives way. Um, the second uh thought, uh, the second thing that's thought to be a cause is an infection where vaginal bacteria make their way up the cervix and attack the amniotic sac, right? Now, rarely PROM can occur after a procedure such as an amniocentesis, but the primary causes are, are thought to be either a weak spot or an ascending infection. Okay, great. So as we think through, yeah, those as potential causes, then obviously that would impact potentially the the risks then of a woman staying pregnant after her water breaks. I mean, I think for for medical professionals that are listening to this, they'll understand this, but maybe for somebody who's not in medicine to think about this, there are situations um, in throughout pregnancy, again, sometimes depending on the gestational age where, you know, a woman's water breaks and, and we might then get her labor going immediately. Um, but then other situations where we have to sort of look and see what's the risk to mom and what's the risk to baby and, and balance that as we make management decisions. And of course, that's where the, the sort of sticky ethical situations sometimes arise. So let's, before we get into all of that though, um, can you review for us, Jeff, what risks are there to both to the unborn child and to the mother of, of PROM, of pre, pre-labor rupture membranes? Yeah, the, the primary thing to the baby is just being delivered prematurely. So premature delivery is a very significant problem, you know, regardless of where on the spectrum that is. There's a, a lot of morbidity uh, and a lot of mortality for the, the baby associated with that. And so the, a large fraction of these patients are just going to go into labor within the first several days after the membranes rupture. Right now, conversely, mm -hmm. some of them, if expectantly managed, will will stay pregnant for weeks or even months. Right now, both the mother and the baby can be harmed by an infection. 
Now, we said a minute ago that there's a localized infection coming up the cervix, attacking the bag of water, the batter, bag of water breaks, and that infection could spread, right? Uh, or once that pathway is there, uh, new bacteria could make their way up the cervix uh, through that pathway. And so that infection in the uterus uh, can be a very significant risk to both the mother and the baby. Uh, the other area of risk for both mom and baby is caused by hemorrhage from placental abruption, where the placental breaks away from the uterine wall. Uh, the hemorrhages can be quite severe. Um, and that, that's going to occur in the few percent range, as opposed to an infection risk, which is, is far higher than that, and maybe a third of patients overall. Um, smaller risks to the baby would be a cord accident. Uh, which is a very serious risk, but doesn't occur very often, either from the cord being compressed from the lack of fluid or the cord coming down through the cervix and being compressed. Um, and then finally, when, when the rupture occurs before 22 weeks, there's, that period is very critical for lung development. And so if there's not enough fluid left in the uterus to cushion the baby, uh, there can be uh, a problem with lung development that we call pulmonary hypoplasia. And that risk is around 10 to 20% if the rupture of membranes occurs before 22 weeks. Absolutely. Thank you. What a great review of, of the risks. And, you know, again, as people, non-medical folks might be listening to this, you know, what you've just heard Dr. Wright go through is what those of us who are taking care of pregnant women in these situations what we go through with them pretty routinely, right? As we're as we're giving them um, you know, their their options here as far as management goes in these situations. Our, our job as physicians, part of our job is to talk about these risks and, and how frequent those are. Um, and it's very important that they have accurate information. So can we talk a little bit more about the infection risks associated with this? Because I think this is the one, well, as you said, it's the most common um, potential complication related to, to pre-labor rupture of membranes, especially prolonged uh, rupture of membranes. But it's also the one that, of course, we're hearing about the most, not only in the news, but I think within medical circles as um, physicians who maybe aren't used to expectantly managing these patients, which we'll get into, are, are now looking at maybe doing that more often and I think are often very afraid of this infection risk. And so can you talk a little bit more about what that means for the, for the mom? Sure. And you're right. This is a really important topic. So, so not all infections are alike. So just your common case of chorioamnionitis and also called intraamniotic infection, by the way. So this is an infection that's in the uterus and the membranes and the uterine wall. Um, it's really pretty common overall in, in uh, pregnancy, even at term. But in, in preterm PROM, perhaps about a third of the patients are eventually going to develop uh, chorioamnionitis. And that's regardless of gestational age, that risk exists, right? Um, now, conversely, a true life-threatening maternal infection, meaning sepsis, that's rare, okay? So the mm -hmm. standard procedure is if chorioamnionitis develops, you start broad-spectrum antibiotics and you deliver the baby. And in properly managed, properly monitored maternal sepsis is rare. In fact, if you look at the large studies, for, for example, the Oracle 1 trial had over 4,000 pregnant women in it. The Oracle 1 trial looked at antibiotics used trying to improve outcomes um, in PROM. 
and they don't even mention maternal sepsis. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the finding is, is really so rare in prospectively managed patients, right? Now, conversely, yeah. if you look at the published reports of pre-viable PROM, those are not prospective randomized trials, right? Those studies are retrospective right. reports. And in those, yes, maternal sepsis is, is reported. So in my mind, in my view, this really under, underscores the need to really carefully monitor these patients, regardless of gestational age, and to be ready to act when needed. Absolutely. Well, and I think, Jeff, you made a couple really important points there. In the study that was done that was prospective, so theoretically, um, you know, they were doing this with a, a standardized protocol, you know, across the study that they don't even mention maternal sepsis. And yet when you look at some retrospective studies, they might show higher incidences. But again, with a retrospective study, there's no control over um, the protocols, you know, how patients are managed. And one of the things that, that I've noticed in some of the stories that have come out, um, tragic stories, as we said, that have come out about women developing severe sepsis from um, pre, you know, pre-viable or even just preterm rupture membranes, you know, some of the information that we've gotten is, well, this patient was diagnosed with rupture membranes and she was sent home and told to return if she had signs of an infection, which I know that's not the way you and I practice uh, when we see these patients. You know, these patients, as you said, have to be very closely monitored and, you know, if you look at, you and I were talking earlier about uh, ACOG's practice bulletin on ruptured membranes, and they, they address this, this pre-viable situation specifically, and even say that the risk of sepsis is anywhere between 2 and 5%. So, you know, not a negligible amount, but again, that's probably mostly based on these retrospective studies. But even at that, it is not a an automatic death sentence for women, um, you know, to have this condition, which I think is sometimes how we're hearing it referred to in, uh, certainly in the media, but even, you know, within discussions amongst medical professionals that, that I've been a part of. And so, you know, I think if we have students or residents that are listening to this specifically, I think this brings up a couple of good points in that you need to understand where the numbers are coming from. When you hear data quoted, you need to understand what kind of study that's coming from. Um, but also to, to really take a hard look at the numbers, you know, something like an intraamniotic infection is a treatable condition when we diagnose it quickly and accurately and then, and then jump on that. And so, um, from that, Dr. Wright, can you tell us, um, what treatment is available? Uh, you know, either you can touch briefly maybe on just when you do diagnose an intraamniotic infection, like you said, you give broad spectrum antibiotics and then get that patient delivered. Um, but are there treatments that are available for, uh, both pre-labor or rupture of membranes, but then also specifically when that happens in the pre-viability period? Right. Right. So, so Christina, you know, this is a good time to make it clear to our listeners that when we're talking about the management and the treatment of pre-viable PROM, that we're not talking about things for which there's anything that's FDA approved, right? And then mm -hmm. also, as, as we've, we've said, you know, the available studies are, are retrospective. There's no large randomized uh, trials focused on the pre-viable and peri-viable timeframes, right? So any opinions that 
come out, regardless of whether you're reading uh, ACOG or, or someone's opinion or, or listening to me, you know, we're extrapolating data from those larger trials like Oracle One and, and, and others, the American NIH trial, for example. Um, and those trials were primarily enrolled moderately preterm patients. Um, and so, so anyway, if we were going to fully discuss the, the entire treatment, obviously that would take more than this podcast. That would be a, you sure, know, a whole seminar. Sure. Um, and so, you know, our, our listeners should, you know, consult a textbook, read the ACOG guideline, of, of course. But um, for that truly pre-viable scenario where the patient is stable, does not have signs of infection, doesn't have a cord prolapse, isn't in labor, um, you want to remember that things like neuromagnesium is not going to help. Lung maturity steroids are not going to help until you get to that potentially viable uh, point. And then tocolytics would not be expected to help either. So those things, you know, those are not things that would be uh, recommended. So that really focuses the question on when to use antibiotics. And most importantly, mm -hmm. in those antibiotic regimens is some form of erythromycin, right? And so mm -hmm. we know from the larger prospective trials that erythromycin and some other combinations of antibiotics will improve latency. Um, now, and so that's just standard thing that every OB would know. But I, I would remind our listeners that when you look at those trials, that benefit is not a night and day benefit. It's a, it is a modest benefit. It is there in those populations, but it's certainly not a cure. Okay. And mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, none of those studies suggested that sort of bigger is better. So, so, you know, none of those studies, they just do not support the idea that, that more is better. Um, so, but in that pre-viable scenario, uh, latency antibiotics should be considered uh, as one possibility, but uh, with the understanding that there's no direct study addressing it. Now, as these pregnancies progress, right, you, you start off with a, a number of people and, and some of those patients are going to stay, stay uh, pregnant, continue the pregnancy. And once viability is reached, that's uh, when you need to use your steroids, you need to use your neuromag, and then, of course, GBS prophylaxis becomes uh, more appropriate. And then as you're doing that, you know, you, you ask about treatment, and, of course, that, that, that those treatments are important, right? Um, yeah. But the overarching issue is careful ongoing monitoring, right? So just take mm -hmm. the temperature, look at the pulse, look at the fetal heart rate. Um, and then ongoing assessment of things like uh, maternal symptoms of contractions, labor, bleeding, uterine pain, uterine tenderness, fever, chills. Uh, you know, one of my old professors used to ask people, do you have flu-like symptoms? Uh, the, the patient should be alert to the odor the, and the color of the fluid in her vaginal discharge. Uh, much of this is maternal self-assessment. Right. Much mm -hmm. of this is, is something that a, a mom is sort of continuously monitoring. Um, and those are the things that are going to give you that early warning uh, that this patient is developing an infection. And then at that point needs broad spectrum antibiotics in delivery. Absolutely. Well, and, um, you know, you made a number of, I think, really important points, especially there at the end. You and I were talking before we started this recording that, you know, for those of us who have practiced our, our entire careers, um, 
you know, being willing to expectantly manage these, these patients when they don't have signs of infection, we understand very clearly how to do close monitoring of these patients and how to pick up those subtle changes. You know, it's part of, I always like uh, going back to the way our, our profession is referenced as the art of medicine, right? And I think that I've, I've used the example many times with students that uh, once you see enough patients that are sick from preeclampsia, you're able to spot them from a mile away because they just have a look to them, you know? And, uh, and, and I think with, with the development of intramnatic infection in these scenarios, it's somewhat similar in that you get used to picking up these signs early on. And, you know, you use the analogy, which I thought was so great that when we look at fetal heart rate tracings, while we try to avoid doing C-sections um, and we try for vaginal deliveries in, in as many cases as we can, we sometimes need to do a C-section when we start seeing even sometimes subtle changes in the fetal heart rate tracing that show us that the baby is in distress for one reason or another. We don't wait until we have a terminal bradycardic event before we take them for a C-section. And I, and the management, as you, you made the analogy, which I thought was perfect, of of this situation of, of pre-labor, especially preterm ruptured membranes is very similar in that we're looking for those subtle changes that tell us that she's got an infection that has started so that we can jump on it. We can treat that infection, get her delivered before it ever turns into sepsis. Um, so I think that's just a really important point to make and for people to understand that that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about waiting until women are septic or on death's door before we intervene to get them delivered. Yes, that is, you know, that is so true. And, you know, think about just an obstetrician on call covering labor and delivery, got a patient or two in labor. um, And we're just talking about term, maybe low risk people in labor. That obstetrician and the the nursing staff, the whole team taking care of that patient, 100% of the time, you're watching for signs of abruption. You're watching for signs of chorioamnionitis. These same complications occur across the spectrum of gestational age. So these are just things we're always watching for. Absolutely. This is Dr. Francis jumping in after recording the conversation with Dr. Jeff Wright. We were having such a good conversation that we decided to carry it over into a second episode, which we will release next week. In part two, we will be discussing neonatal survival rates, maternal risks of expectant management, and the law versus the ethics of managing prom. We hope you enjoy it. Hi there, this is Miriam, the other host of this podcast. I just quickly wanted to jump in with a couple of announcements. One is that next week is Thanksgiving Day, and in honor of that, we will be taking a break. We hope that you enjoy your holiday, and we will see you the week after uh, for part two of this conversation. And the other announcement is that November 28th is Giving Tuesday. That's an opportunity for you to donate to a nonprofit organization whose work you support. In honor of Giving Tuesday this year, Applog will be dedicated all funds we receive on that day to funding our Joe DeCook Scholarship Program, which is a full-ride scholarship for medical students and residents to attend our Matthew Bolfin Educational Conference, which is a pro-life medical conference, which will allow them to gain insights from the latest research, network with other pro-life medical professionals, and just generally gain support as they start their career as pro-life medical professionals. If you're interested in supporting the next generation of pro-life medical professionals, 
professionals in this way, feel free to go to aaplog.org slash donate on November 28th. That's aaplog.org slash donate. That's it for me. As usual, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a five-star review on whatever podcast app you're using to listen, and we will see you in two weeks.